Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. Letters to a New Pastor. This is episode 99 of En Route. Well, hello and welcome to a new episode of En Route, the podcast that's at the intersection of Church and Maine. This is the podcast on religion and public affairs, and I am Dennis Sanders, your host. I'm not Methodist. I'm Disciples of Christ, but for some reason I seem to know a lot of Methodists, at least online. And that's actually kind of odd because, of course, I live in Minnesota, which is the land of Lutherans, and, well, I know a lot of Lutherans. I actually also happen to be married to one. But nevertheless, I've met a lot of of Methodists um, from all walks of life. I enjoy chatting with them about faith and how that intersects with modern life. And my guest today is yet another Methodist pastor, but this is my first time meeting him. I've, I've known of him through other uh, Methodist friends that I know. Um, Ben Gosden is the lead pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church in Savannah, Georgia. Um, He is, um, Trinity is considered the mother church of of Methodism in Savannah. Um, It's old enough that it was actually around and that John Wesley probably actually visited. Um, But we're not talking about the church as much as we are about something that Ben has written. He wrote a series of blog posts, and he's actually kind of trying to get back into writing blogs again. Um, And there are series that are kind of um, writing that are called Letters to a Young Pastor. And so we decided to talk about that. He's written three so far. I think he's actually going to be writing several more. And we talked about really basically what he has learned in um, over a decade of being a pastor. And um, actually, he actually gives some good advice on on other issues such as um, racism and how to deal with that. And he actually even gives me some very needed advice. So I think that you will enjoy this um, podcast. Um, I did think it was a very um, honest and vulnerable uh, time of talking that um, sometimes as pastors, we don't always get to do that as much. And I think it was a good time um, for both of us. So I hope that it will be helpful for you. Um, as we hear about um, letters 
to a young pastor. And so let's hear from Ben Gosden. Well, Ben, I, I'm glad that you were able to take the time uh, to meet with me. Yeah, good to be here with you. Well, I think the first thing I wanted to start off with is to find out a little bit about the context of um, where you're serving, um, how long have you been in the ministry, and um, then also a little bit about your blog. Yeah, so um, right now I serve as uh, the lead pastor uh, at Trinity United Methodist Church in downtown Savannah, Georgia. Uh, we are known as the, the mother church of Savannah Methodism. Uh, so we're we were the first Methodist church in the in the Savannah proper area and birthed many churches and uh, all that very historic church. We're recognized by the I think the John Wesley historic historical parish society or something um, because of our connections to to Wesley and to early Methodism. I've been here for six years. Um, okay. I'm going into my seventh year, um, and then uh, I, I'm trying to doing the math. I'm going into my twelfth year of ministry total. Okay. So yeah, I'm getting into that that mid range service. You know, I'm not a young, I'm not a young uh, new pastor anymore. You know, single digits are gone. I'm into like double digits of service now. So yeah, this year is going to be twenty for me. So um, there I, you go. I See you know. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I totally get but it. But what's bad is I so I'm 39 years old. I'll be mm -hmm. 40 in November. And when I came to this church, I was I was this you know 32, 33 year old child. Um, and I've just started wearing glasses, um, cause I can't see as well. I'm, you know, my eyes are 40 now and, mm -hmm. and I've got gray hairs coming. And I told my church, I'm like, y'all I'm aging right in front of you. Like this is kind of embarrassing. I've been here long enough. You're going to see me get old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I totally get it. I totally get yeah. it. So now that you've actually kind of are into that period and, and I, I, get back because I was there a decade ago when you're kind of hitting 40, yeah. you're hitting a certain period in your life where you're old enough that you can kind of look back and see what you've learned um, and also ahead. Mm -hmm. And so um, mm -hmm. one of the fascinating things is, of course, now you've started this kind of, at least what seems like an ongoing series of letters uh, to a young pastor. And did kind of getting closer to age 40 make you kind of start to think about that and how do you impart wisdom to a younger generation? Yeah, so you asked about the blog and I forgot to answer that. And so it's interesting. I started that blog when I was in seminary. Okay. So that blog is over 15 years old now. Wow. And yeah, it's it's been around since like WordPress was cutting edge for blog templates and stuff. And I've never changed it because I don't really know how to do that. Um, and so I really did start it as a young pastor and <clears throat> you can see the evolution from seminary student to, to early pastor, a lot of Methodist centric stuff that I really began to get some traction on. And then it's really gone quiet in the last few years in many respects. And part of that is I just, I, I, I'm learning to try to work and lead a church and, you know, I'm not a young seminary student or associate pastor anymore. And so you only have so much creative juices and when you got to mm -hmm. preach every week, you tend to put it into that. 
Um, but I'm trying to get back into writing. It was a passion of mine. It's something I want to do. It's something I'd like to publish one day. I published articles for years. Um, I would love to, to publish more. So I, I've really tried to get back into that. So yeah, I just kind of thought, and in the Methodist world, we're, we're having this big, ugly, nasty fight over human sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I've got very strong beliefs on that. But I've also thought, you know, everybody is taking up the airspace or the blogosphere space on that. What's something that 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 could be productive? And so just kind of thinking, I'm at that mid, mid-career, getting close to the mid-career time, like just processing out loud, what are some things that I've learned the hard way um, that maybe there's someone who was me 15 years ago trying to start a blog that starting out in ministry and I don't know, maybe it could help them. I don't know. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I think we all wish that we had something like that when we started and um, having that, I think hopefully um, for the people who still actually read blogs, which I think they should, um, that can be helpful. Um, well, and, and, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but I had it in oral form. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you had these old mm-hmm. pastors who would teach you these amazing lessons and you almost wish they had written them down. Yep. And so my hope is maybe I'm, I'm working on one, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, um, how to do funerals. Okay. And, and, and just trying to share just, and not every lesson, because everyone, you know, you can't, that's an, that's an inexhaustible topic, how to do funerals but just little things that pastors have taught me over the years about like how to, how to do this really well. And I mean, I don't know if I do them great, but I feel pretty deep, pretty good doing them. Um, and, but a lot of that's been, and so maybe to pass some of those lessons on that to a certain degree, we're stewards, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of good lessons and, and, and grace, God's grace is a gift only if we give it away. And so I think in a similar way, maybe as we learn as pastors, we can give people a gift of grace by sharing some things we've learned. Have you been able um, to get any kind of feedback, any response? Have people, younger pastors actually um, responded to you saying thank you or anything? To yeah, those I think I think some, you know, and like you said, I, I um, you know, how do people read blogs anymore? And, you know, I, I there was a time when I got a few hundred clicks per Yep. post and, and it's rebuilding some of that. But yeah, I've gotten a few nice notes of, you know, uh, I had one of a, a, actually a dear friend who she is brand new going into first year of seminary. She's mid-career calling out mm. of one job and into another. And, you know, she was real kind and just said she's going to try to take it and like she'd frame it if she could to just take it because she's about to serve her first two point charge. OK, so, so little things like that. And I, and I hope people like that can latch on to, you know, you the old codgers have no reason to read it. And um, folks, you know, like me are going to critique it about whether it's good or not and whatever. Um, but I hope like the people who are scared to death and trying to figure <laughs> to, can just find it, live nothing else, some camaraderie that we've all been scared to death to, to lead a church, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So the first, one of the first ones you wrote was the one that I think is always the, the punchline that I think every pastor says at some point when they, hit something that they weren't prepared for is that I didn't learn this at seminary. Yeah. Um, and so kind of, could you kind of explain a little bit about that? What, what kind of led you to write that? And um, what did you learn from the fact that you, not everything you needed to do as a pastor came from seminary? 
yeah, so the 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 big thrust uh, of that is <clears throat> is one of those that's kind of setting them up and trying to knock them down sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Because the big thrust is, of course, you didn't learn that in seminary. Did you think you were going to just finish your learning when you finished seminary? You're a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. That's if nothing else. That's what we learn in ministry is the more you think you know, the more you really realize you don't know anything. Um, and and so you know we're we're to be lifelong learners to to and that, and that's sort of what the life of faith is about. You know, the moment you think you can pass the exam of Christianity is the moment that you just become narrow minded. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the open-minded, humble Christians are the ones who are like, yeah, you know, by the grace of God, I'm here, and I'm not really sure I know all the answers, but you do the best you can with what you've got, and you keep learning. And so that's really the thrust of it. So whenever you hear a pastor, oh, I didn't learn that in seminary, well, yeah, probably not. We have some fun stories um, about it, but, but you know, it's, it's, it's also those, those are probably the best lessons to keep you humble so that when you do the holy work of ministry, the preaching, the visiting, the the caring, you don't get so caught up in your own giftedness mm-hmm. that you forget the fact that that you're just the vessel through which God works. And it's because you're an empty vessel at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, the congregation that I lead is going through right now is that we're selling our building and looking oh. for a new building. And <clears throat> pretty much, yeah, that was not taught. And and but you have to kind of learn that. And why why are y'all selling the building? We are um selling our building partially um one, it's it's kind of harder for us to maintain as a in our size. Um we've kind of really kind of come to a, a conclusion that our where we are currently is hasn't been healthily really conducive for our ministry. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of doing some discerning of where that is um, and um, kind of getting and looking at this as a new phase in our ministry of, of who we are as a congregation. I think that we were a certain type of congregation when we moved there some 30 years ago. We're not that congregation anymore. And so you're planning. You're you're in the midst of funeral planning. Funeral and rebirth. Yeah. Yes. But but that yeah that funeral planning uh, is very real. I mm-hmm. my previous appointment we it was a church that in nineteen in the sixties was a thousand members, mm-hmm. and we were down to about a hundred members, and we ended up going in with three churches to create an intentionally multiracial church mm-hmm. here in the deep south. Okay. And so mine, but mine was a classic, it was a mostly white, although it had been integrated some, um, mostly white church that every white flight, everyone moved, they once lived in the neighborhood, generations moved away, their kids had stopped coming. And so it was the older adults trying to hang on in a, in a neighborhood transitioning all around them, they didn't know what to do with it. And so we, we ended up, ha- I mean, essentially having a funeral for the building, but they mm-hmm. sold the building to an African-American church who's now thriving. Hmm. And they took the assets from that, moved to the new building where the church merger happened and were able to bring those assets with them to give birth to something new. Mm -hmm. But in the process of that, we really had to, I mean, even little things like our last Christmas Eve, we gave away as many, the Chrismon ornaments, you know, on the tree. Um, you know, we, we have people who like ladies groups and, and, and knit it, they'll make these ornaments, you know, those crafty little ornament things. 
And, and I invited people to come and take a few of them because they knew who made them mm-hmm. and when, and it was a way of taking mementos from their church that they could then take home and keep. But, um, yeah, we, we, uh, they had a stained glass window of, of it told the, the, the 23rd Psalm. And so if you went in clock clockwise, it, it, it sort of did in, in visual the, the Psalm. And so I had an artist do a big oil painting of the window to go with them to the new church. Mm. They couldn't remove the stained glass, but yeah, you're, you're definitely in funeral planning. Yeah, it is. And I think it's, there are some people that want to resist that. And sure. Or and and want to deny that and and I'm kind of like okay, but we can't be anything new if we don't die, and that's actually where we have to be. Um, so you know, one of the things I have to do is is thinking about a a decommissioning service, um, which you know, you know, the church is isn't closing, but it is ending that ministry, and that is a death. And I think that that's something um, that is important and has to be done. But it's going to be a challenge for people. And yeah. I think that's what you have to kind of learn. You, you don't learn that from a class. You have to learn that going through it. You do. Um, have you read David Kessler's book, um, Finding Meaning? I have not, but that name sounds familiar. David Kessler was the uh, protege of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the five stages okay. of grief. Mm-hmm. Kessler said that Kubler-Ross never got to the sixth stage that she wanted to write about, which was, um, you know, you go through anger, denial, all the different, and you get to acceptance. Mm-hmm. And Kessler said people have just bastardized, you know, the stages because they're not meant to be linear and acceptance is not the final that she ever thought was going to be, but she died. The sixth stage of grief is finding meaning. This is where the woman whose daughter was killed by a drunk driver eventually created the organization known as MAD, Mothers Against Mm -hmm. Driving. So this is where the loss, you find new life and meaning in the midst of loss. I highly recommend the book because it teaches you as a leader how to help others go through grief with each other. One of the things that Kessler says that's so important is that um, we all have an innate human need that our grief be witnessed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes grief so hard is we feel alone. And for us to collectively share and see each other's grief is a very meaningful thing. And so that's where you can really mark this passage of time with special things, all the things that they take for granted that has happened in that building over the years that mark the calendar year as you get to your final ones you can really amp up that meaning because you're you're witnessing grief with each other mm-hmm. i remember a seminary professor um told us he said you're gonna get these churches at the sanctuary hold like 500 people and you got like 40 people in the church still and you're sitting there saying why are these people sitting in the back it would make more sense for them to come up and i'll never forget dr long said before you push them just remember, we believe in the communion of saints. And so where you see a little old lady sitting in the back corner and she can't hear anymore, she sees the saints of her husband and friends and family who used to fill the pews around her. Mm-hmm. And she's not alone. She's there because she's with them. And so it's really good for us as pastors 
to because you can see resurrection and they can't just yet. Mm-hmm. But but for you to faithfully walk through death with them, they'll trust you that much more on the other side. This you didn't ask any of that, but I love what you're doing because you're doing such holy work. Oh, I, I and I've done this with the church, and and man, it is so hard and emotionally grueling. And I hope that you're taking care of yourself, seeing a counselor, spiritual coach, whatever you need to try to unload some of this because you're you're bearing a lot with them. Yeah, it is a lot, and thank you that um, for, for for kind of linking with that. That that's important. And, oh yeah. And I am trying to learn to try to take care of myself because yeah, it's a lot. It has been a, a heavy year. Um, kind of going through this entire process. It's been a heavy last couple of years. This COVID stuff's wearing <laughs> out, man. It has it's been a tough <laughs> couple of years. I, I did, we're, we're recording this in mid-June, and mm-hmm. I'm so grateful. Um, my church is giving me a renewal leave in July. I'm, oh, I'm that's taking great. the month of July off, and I told them, I said, y'all, I'm tired, and I just finished my doctor of ministry, and I said, I, I'm worried I'm going to get burnt out. And they were gracious and said, if you need a few Sundays off, take it. So, yeah, I'm with you. This has been a tough couple of years, and you're, you're doing some really holy work, but it is very burdensome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indeed. So, I mean, I guess, is that actually, you know, talking about your experience of having to kind of not close a church, but end a certain phase of its ministry and a certain life? Yeah. Is that something that you think you will be writing about at some point? Maybe, you know, it's one of those things that, that I, I, I really believe and I wish that folks like us who, have, who are doing this and have done this, I wish we could tell our story more <clears throat> because we need to close churches in America. Mm-hmm. We have too many buildings. And, 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 and it's not so much that you have too many buildings, it's that we need to reallocate our resources better. And so we've got way too many buildings in areas that that they don't serve those purposes anymore. And we don't have nearly enough resources in areas where where God is on the move. And if we could just reallocate those resources from the areas of less need and put the resources into the areas of greater need. um, I think about there's Miami First United Methodist Church, gigantic building, big building. They ended up selling in the millions of dollars. Um, a large portion of their building to create um, subsidized housing because they said the church doesn't need all this building anymore, but the community needs housing that's affordable in Miami because it's so expensive. Mm-hmm. Let's do this for the sake of the community. Atlanta First Methodist Church is doing the same thing. And so those are creative ways to partner in your community and to listen to the needs and to say, where's God on the move next? And how can we put... I mean, really put our money in our buildings where our mouths are, that we want to be a part of, of the transformation of the world. Mm-hmm. And so it takes tough decisions like that to say, you know, maybe we don't need this gigant, maybe down, you know, you think about it like downsizing. It's tough to lo- to leave the house you raised your children in, but they're amazing people, many of whom are in our churches struggling that their buildings, you know, are too big to say, but you remember how you moved to the town home and you love it? Like we can do that as a church, you know, it's just moving to the town home and mm-hmm. it's a little smaller, but it's easier to keep it's clean. Keep and, up. 
someone's going to do the yard for you. You don't need to bother with that anymore. And, and it's manageable, you know, and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And, and in the meantime, too, the, the nuts and bolts that a lot of churches don't realize is when you downsize because you're not maintaining a larger aging property and you sell the property, you're pro- and I'm, I don't know your, financial, your church's financial health, but my guess is for many churches, you're starting to get pretty tight. In a lot oh, of it was getting very tight. Yeah. Well, just like with with um, property investments, when you downsize, you're going to have a lot of cash. Yep. And that church is going to be able to do some things and breathe and enjoy ministry and not have every discussion come down to, well, you know, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. Well, now you can and you don't mm-hmm. have this big, gigantic building as a burden anymore. Yep. So there's some of that, too, that, that, that the longevity of the church can be insured in a really amazing way if you can part with uh, um, out, outsized property. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you think that you can prepare? Well, maybe that's not the best word to say, but a lot of new pastors are going to have to deal with this, um, yeah. especially in the wake of the pandemic. Um, you know, what kind of sage advice would you give some of these people because all of a sudden if they're not you know a mid-career they may all of a sudden have to understand the finer points of of you know um real estate and all of this stuff um but i think that that is something that's going to be happening more and more in the years to come yeah oh man i i've met probably many answers that are in no particular order um cast a clear vision for what the kingdom of God looks like. One of the benefits that we have from COVID is that we can imagine the church not existing within four walls of the building mm-hmm. because we couldn't occupy those walls together. And so um, casting a vision that says the church is alive and well outside of the building can begin to help people see their identity as more than just occupants of a building. Now, other things, it may not be that you need to sell your building, but you need to come up with creative uses of it, mm-hmm. creating rental income, partnered office spaces. How, what, what, what community driven agency needs offices. And for many of us, you know, we have this office wing of a church that used to have 15 offices in it and the church has shrunk and it's four people using offices. Well, all of a sudden every office you got, that's money. That's monthly income. That's a tither. Okay. So rent your offices out. You know, quit using them for storage, clean out your churches and, and start create, finding creative ways to engage with the community and, and, and you can build income as well. Open your doors as much as you can to, to, to folks outside of your church so that it really takes on, we tend to treat churches as fortresses that we want to hide behind and we need to open the doors so that the community knows this is not just our church, this is your church. You know, how can you... How can you um, think blood drives, uh, uh, voting precincts, you know, um, neighborhood association meetings, um, uh, recovery meetings, 12-step stuff. Uh, I mean, you could just go down a list of things that that you you could create a calendar of things happening in your building and then, you know, try to to, um, get some income a little bit as you can to help pay for it. But it just gets traction in your building. The saddest thing about our churches is not that they're oversized. 
it's that it's that they're only used one day a week. Yep. And they stay underutilized. Yeah, they're underutilized. That's the issue. So, you know, there there could be some things that you want to do with that. But, you know, having a vision for the kingdom that's beyond that is important. Um, You know, being willing to have hard discussions, but that means building trust. So sometimes that means coming in slow. A lot of us get in there and, and we can see because, you know, we've been theologically trained and I can I could probably go into your church right now and tell you 15 things you need to do differently. And that would be fine as a guest. You bring a consultant in for that. But when you're the pastor, you're not the consultant. And the mistake we make is going in and telling them these are the ways you've been doing church wrong all these years. Well, you know, they've been there a long time and <laughs> right or wrong. These folks have been faithful to God. And so you got to honor what they're doing, which means slow pedaling sometimes some of those tough discussions um, and building trust. Mm-hmm. That's another thing, pastors. I, I think we, we don't spend enough time and we need to stay places for a long time because trust is like showing up with an empty bank account. You can't spend from a bank account. You haven't put any money. in. And, and every time you build trust in the congregation, you're putting a little bit of money, a little bit of money, a little bit of money, so that when those hard things come, you can start spending. And they'll know you, they'll love you, they'll trust you. Um, I have a friend who I forget, man, I wish I thought about this. He went into his church and did this great thing. Basically said the first year, he said, I'm here to listen. He said, I'm here to listen, and I'm here, I'm here to listen to who you are how God is moving in your midst. And there was a third one I can't remember. And he said, that's all I'm doing the first year. Now, for some of us, we can't, we, we, he went into a healthier church. We have what another friend calls triage work. We, we've walked into the ER. It's our shift, you know, the night shift. And we got some, a patient bleeding out. We got to stop the bleeding. <laughs> and we're going into churches that we got to sew them up and stop the bleeding to at least get them to a place where they can gain health. Um, so you may have to deal with some triage stuff, and that's that's going to be tough. So uh, it's a wandering answer to get smart people around you. Mm-hmm. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to mentors. Listen to the people, even if you know that they're not always right. At least listen to them so you you understand things like you're telling me one thing, but there's really something underneath it. And learn to listen to God. And that's where your own spiritual life comes in. How do you pray? How do you have a devotional life? Do you have a spiritual coach? Do you have a counselor in your life? All these things that you're doing in a holistic way. So you're just honing your own ears and heart and mouth to listen. So that when you do speak, it matters. Hmm. Well, one of the things, I mean, you've talked a little bit about kind of helping to maybe cast a vision for a congregation. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways that you do that is um, through preaching. Yeah. And one of the, the blog posts you have is, is kind of finding your preaching voice. Yeah. Um, and I found that, that one fascinating because you kind of try to liken it to a, a reality show. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you made it less of you know American Idol or The Voice and more of the the masked singer. So yeah, I'm curious, what was the? How did you get to that analogy? Well, you know, it may, it may be a bad analogy, but 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 basically, we all put on these masks because what we think our true selves are. <laughs> we don't. We very few of us find that to be a very worthy preacher. 
And so we go to seminary and, you know, we, we listen to these great preachers and, you know, we, we, we hear preachers, you know, that, that throughout history and, and all of a sudden we want to preach like them. So you, we find ourselves speaking in a cadence like they speak and, and, and using their work and we don't always cite them, but, you know, we may steal a point here or there and, you know, and uh, uh, um, we, 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 we have a persona and somewhere along the way, and, and the way I found is only really happens through practice <clears throat> is eventually you begin to shed the persona and hopefully if, if we're faithful to the task of preaching, you lose the persona over time and just you starts coming out. Mm-hmm. There's so many preachers who are so much better than me and I would love to be like them. But once you've done it long enough, you, you, I hope most of us start to realize how awkward it feels to pretend. And here's the thing. The people in your pews, they, they know it when you're pretending, whether you realize it or not. And they'll tell you, oh, good job, preacher. That was a nice sermon and all that. But it's like they, they, it's like they come to the same, you know, uh, 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 little, little thing. They pop a quarter, they pull the thing, and just the same stuff comes out. And it's like, mm, okay, this is great. And, and they're bored to tears. And sometimes we, we really underestimate how much it, and forgive me if uh, you don't, I don't know if I mess you right, but I mean, we just are. Their, their bullshit meters are very good. And if we just would drop some of the bullshit sometimes and just tell people, like, you know, life's hard in this way. It is for me. How about you? Or God is just absolutely amazing in this way. Don't know if that's ever happened to you, but here it is for me. People will begin to say, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And you may never make a great, neat little theological point, but sometimes if you can just get somebody to say in a sermon to themselves, yeah, me too. Now you've got them thinking theologically the way you've been thinking theologically all week. Hmm. The, the writer Soren Kierkegaard, used to, he was a weirdo. He used to love to go to the theater and to the cemetery. Kierkegaard wasn't interested in the show. He was interested in the intermission. He would hide behind theater curtains and he'd listen to people talking <clears throat> and, and, and he would go to cemeteries and he'd listen to people talking and Kierkegaard was fascinated with how people talked about their own life and, and, and found all this creative inspiration by listening to people around them. If the preacher can listen to their life and the lives of people around them faithfully and, and, and prayerfully and boldly just tell the truth about it those sermons will get so many more miles of traction. And sometimes it's the trust thing too. Like some of us have to go in and say, well, you know, I have this certain thing that could be viewed as political. Like, you know, I don't know about you, but where I am down South, it's like, Oh, that's, I don't want to come here for politics. I'm like, well, you know, Jesus cared a whole lot about people and this is about people. So you have to build the trust and know how to run yeah. some things through a filter so that people hear it well. Um, but, but I think people appreciate honesty, vulnerability, transparency, and truth-telling. If you put that in just whatever voice, one little mechanical thing, like I hope, I, I haven't heard you preach. I, I'd love to hear you preach, but, but you're very engaging conversationalist. I hope if I listen to your sermon, your voice, everything sounds mechanically the way it does right now. 
I have a, a preaching mentor who says, be careful of getting that sing songy voice. Mm. You know, where all of a sudden I'm talking like this and then and we think that's how you ought to preach. But really the way you ought to preach is what we're doing right now. It's a conversation. So much more compelling. Mm-hmm. Mm. So much more compelling. So, yeah, I mean, that that's a mechanical thing of people just drop your sing songy voice. Nobody likes that. Just talk the way people love for you to talk. And most of us are pretty engaging and folks will really be drawn in mm-hmm. and be self-deprecating. That may be one more thing I put in there. Don't be afraid to make fun of yourself a little bit. It's fine. I do not have a problem doing that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I think that that reminds me of something I want to say is it was, it's Frederick Buechner that said it um, about preaching is in some ways that it's about, opening a vein that there's a certain amount mm-hmm. of vulnerability that comes with preaching um, that I sometimes think we forget about because we think about technique we're thinking about the theological backgrounds and all of that is important in, in a sermon but it, it also has to come from you um, it, it's not coming from you know, a preacher bod or it's not coming mm-hmm. from you know some pastor mm-hmm. from 50 years ago it's coming from you and from your yeah. from your life and and, pl- and I'll play with your sermons. Be playful. Um, they're different forms. They're different, you know, um, shapes you can use. Um, I use different ones sometimes just, just for whatever. Um, Andy Stanley has a really good one. If you read Communicating for Change, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's, it's me, we, God, you, us. So you tell a little something about you and you say, well, isn't it true for all of us? And then you broaden it out to the we, and then you say, now this is what God says about it. And then you get into now for you directly, what does this say into your life? But then you do the end with the we, because you remember that it's not about the individual journey. It's about how, now what can we do with this? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing Eugene Lowry did with the Lowry loop, uh, which is essentially the narr- a narrative form that movies use. You know, you 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 kind of tell it. You get in here to the climax, and then you have the little the little bit on the end that the re- resolution of it. Lowry loop is a way of creating tension in the sermon. You know, you you can do that. That's a fun little playful thing you can do. Um, there there's the the four page sermon uh, that I use. Uh, page one is problem in the text. Page two is problem in the world. Page three is gospel in the text. Page four is gospel in the world. So if you took your text and you just said, what's the problem happening in the text? And then how does that relate to a problem in the world? Now, what does God say in the text that's gospel? Now, what does the gospel look like in the world? That's a pretty, you know, that's a full sermon. That right? is a very four, full sermon. Yeah. Four moves, right? Um, one more, Fred Craddock, and this is the hardest one. Fred Craddock created the inductive method of preaching. So often preaching is deductive. We go through this process and we study and commentaries and prayer and all stuff. And we're, we have the aha moment during the week. And then we say, okay, the aha moment is, you know, Jesus loves you and it's amazing. And so then when we get to Sunday, we say, yeah, the point of the sermon is Jesus loves you and it's amazing. And here are three ways that you know why Jesus loves you and it's amazing. And what Craddock says is that that's fine, but that's a kind of boring way of preaching. And he said, what preachers miss is that during the week, you had this aha moment that was pretty amazing. And what if you did it instead of a deductive way of explaining it, you took them on a journey, an inductive journey, so they could have their own aha moment. 
tough thing is Craddock was a master storyteller who could tell these stories that it, it would like make your head explode at the end. Most of us don't know how to do that, but it's a fun way of thinking about using storytelling as a way of um, preaching. It's funny being that you're in Georgia and my, I'm a disciples pastor. I was wondering how long it was going to be before oh, I, heard, yeah. I heard Fred Craddock. So. Father Craig, you, <laughs> yeah, Father Craddock, Father Fred, uh, you know, you know about Fred Craddock. What a gift to preaching he was. Yes, yes, he was. Mm-hmm. And to be such a small man with such a, as he says it, you know, in the great orchestra of the church, he's just a piccolo. You know, with this little whispery voice of his, and golly, he could just preach his brains out. Craddock said too that early. You probably know this, but you know he writes in his books that he found his father was a master storyteller too, and so Craddock really embodied that. But he found early in preaching, he would preach and he'd watch people fall asleep. And then what he found was when he got out there and he'd greet everybody after church and do the whole, that he'd get to talking and storytelling. And he found that they were more engaged on the front steps of the church, listening to him tell stories than they were when he was preaching. Hmm. So Craddock was like, I think there's something to this. I need to bring this into the pulpit because they listen better. Hmm. Yeah. I, it's always kind of interesting because I always wonder if that's, a southern thing or if that's just preaching in general because I, I i noticed that there are a lot of pastors from the south that are really strong storytellers storytelling is a southern thing yes and i'm not saying it's everybody storytells no, it's like no. everybody can make fried chicken mm-hmm. but the fried chicken tastes different down here <laughs> there's something true. there's something in the heat that makes fried chicken and the humidity tastes better and 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 cornbread melt in your mouth and it makes a story sound better mm-hmm. yeah because i think you know the other person that i think a lot about with storytelling is will williman oh um, yes very good at that south carolina born and yeah mm-hmm. um yeah bishop williman he can tell a story too yes um yeah williman loves to, he he and williman's one of his big influences is flannery o'connor mm-hmm. the great gothic uh southern gothic um short story writer um if you want um what i think is one of the best sermons in short story form go read flannery o'connor's story revelation okay with ruby turpin the nasty little southern judgmental woman ruby turpin and read revelation and when you get to the end you're it's a sermon unto itself and i've used the image uh, uh, at the end, but and you know, Flannery O'Connor is always this uh, this big ending that you did, and that Williman loves doing that. Um, you know, Flannery O'Connor is a, a, um, is a good man is hard to find. Uh, the story where the the woman uh, the, the 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 robber kills her in the end. Mm-hmm. You know that story. I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. So I was spoiler. You know, she basically um, all the judgmental stuff leaves, and she has mercy for the first time in her life. And the guy who, and he says, guy had a gun pulled on her and he ended up killing her. And he said, you know, she'd have been pretty, basically, he said she'd be pretty amazed if somebody had pulled a gun on her entire life. <laughs> and Flannery O'Connor said, the grace of God should hit you between the eyes. And that's what Wilman loves doing. Huh. <laughs> well, yeah. and this kind of actually leads to the your most recent blog post because it was talking about preaching across generations. Yeah. Um, 
because there's something I remember hearing, it's not written down anywhere, but it was a, a Willimon um, story of a young pastor. This was during his time as a as the bishop in North, North Alabama, Alabama. Yeah, who was in North Alabama. And the um, pastor, young pastor comes <clears throat> to him and basically says that he's kind of um, shocked by um, the racism of the members of his congregation. And um, Willman was said to have responded, um, your pastor in North Alabama, what did you expect? Um, you know, it's kind of that sense of kind of helping to, to school him or helping to understand this is the church that you're dealing with. It's not the kind of an idealized belief. And in some ways, it's kind of that imparting across of a generation. Um, usually it's a little bit more soft softer yeah. in that, that way but his, <clears throat> obviously he had reason to kind of hit, hit him with a two by four well but, but when it's softer it's harder it's yeah. harder to deal with because it's it's a lot easier it life would be a lot easier racism is a great example it would be a lot easier to preach about racism in my church if my people were out burning crosses in front yards mm -hmm. what's hard about preaching about racism is when is when you're dealing with systemic racism and when you're dealing with the difference between avoiding racism versus being anti-racist, which mm -hmm. I believe is what we're called to be now. Um, you can't just avoid, you know, it's like John Wesley has these general rules of do no harm, do good, right? And then stay in love with God. We've been stuck on do no harm. As long as I don't say racist things and, and go around being racist, then, then we're good. But the truth is we're not doing good. And doing good means adjusting and readjusting the systems in our own lives to say, not only am I going to avoid racism, I want to be anti-racist. That's hard for a lot of people to take. Hmm. So how do you get it across? Um, you try to assess where you are. You love people just like you love your children, you know, when you have to give them a hard lesson. For example, one, one way that a friend taught me to talk about systemic racism is someone will inevitably say, what do you mean white privilege? I've never had privilege in my life. I've, I've worked for and everything's been hard and I've gone through and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. To which I'd say, yes, you have. You, you, you have had obstacles in your way. You have gone through many things and you have earned everything that you have. But one obstacle you have not had is the color of your skin. You've had a lot of other ones. And all we're saying here is the color of your skin has not been an obstacle. And then I, then I like to remind people, and, and you, I'm sure, have, have gone through this. I'm a father. I have a son and a daughter. I have friends who are, are closer to your age and whose kids are a little bit older. My kids are 10 and 5. It weighs on me so heavily that I will not have to take my son and have the talk with him. And the talk is, how do we behave and respond when you get pulled over by a police officer? I have friends who they have, they, dads have to talk. And, and what, what's, what kills me is they have, it's like this ritual, this passage of time now that I talk to my son because my father had to talk to me and his father had to talk to him. And it's the same conversation. How do you interact with police and not get yourself arrested or killed? Mm -hmm. I don't have to have that conversation with my son. That's privilege. 
So now we have to ask ourselves the questions. And, you know, and, I, and I'm not saying I don't come at my church people this hard, but, you know, like if I were having no, this conversation, no, no. Like, like, does that break your heart? Now let's talk about how, what could we do so that the next generation of fathers don't have to worry so much and mothers don't have to worry so much that, 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 that their black boys are not home on time. You know, like, like it's just something to it. In a similar way, there's other privileges. Like, I don't have to talk to my son the way I'm going to have to talk to my daughter. Of like, hey, when you go to a party, keep your hands on your drink at all times. Mm-hmm. Make sure you know where your exits are. Don't get cornered in a, in, a, in a place that you don't know somebody around. Those are things that girls have to worry about. The boys don't. So there's all these layers of privilege that if we just kind of peel it back like an onion, people know it's true and they need to take that shock a little bit and be bothered by. And then when we can get bothered by it, we can start to really talk about it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, racism is a tough one, man. I mean, it's um, nobody wants to be a racist. <laughs> And most of us aren't anymore, overtly. But now we're in the hard work of having to deal with owning the fact that some of us have benefited from systems that were weighed in our favor well before we were ever a twinkle in our mother's eye. In essence, that really now the hard work begins. Yeah, it is. Because, you know, the other, how do you turn over? You can't turn over 400 plus years of racism in a nation in 60 years or less. I mean, you know, it takes time. You know, you can't elect one black president and say racism's over. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't happen that way. But it's hard. Um, and so, you know, you also have to accept people for where, you know, it's that old saying, you know, we want to love you where you are, but we want to love you enough that we don't want to leave you where you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that gentle but persistent fierceness of love you can push people. Um, you just have to really assess where they are and love them right there. And they need to know that they're loved first. Mm-hmm. And then you can push them. Yeah, I, I guess I wonder, do you think that sometimes when we do try to d- discuss race, I mean, where does grace fit into that discussion? Especially if you're talking with a predominantly white congregation. You know, and, and obviously I'm not talking about cheap grace or anything to that extent obviously there is there's there's a role for repentance and, and yeah. turning around but um but not to necessarily always just kind of whack <clears throat> it over the head because that doesn't seem to always work yeah. i think there's a certain amount of grace in acknowledging our ignorance mm-hmm. you didn't know we've all made mistakes in life that you know we just said i didn't know that was going to hurt you i didn't know that this bothered you i didn't know and, and there's grace in saying, that's okay. You didn't know. That's okay. We, we've all been there and done that. But now you do know. Mm-hmm. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. And so how can we love you to say now, what are we going to do with this? We don't, you don't have to, I mean, you know, you get into things like, I don't, I don't not believe in reparations, but that's, I feel like I'm not smart enough to understand you know, that's above my pay grade, but I'm not against it at all either. But but you don't have to tell, you know, you, you can just begin with little things of now that you've seen it and you acknowledge your ignorance. Now, what can we do with that? Um, I tell people one easy way of understanding your privilege. Pay attention to your circles. Where do you go in your daily life? Look around. Is it all white people at your grocery store, at the restaurants? in your neighborhood, 
Is it all white people in every circle that you ever kind of kind of uh, converse in? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you're not meaning to, but where can you inject a little diversity? I mean, the world is not an all whitewashed world, right? Um, how can you go to the the this may be a Southern thing, but we're talking about being Southern. In every town that I've lived in, there's a murder Kroger. And, and by murder Kroger, it's this nickname it gets for crime always happens at this Kroger. Mm-hmm. But you know what I've also realized is true about quote unquote murder Kroger? That's the greatest diversity that that town can see. Mm-hmm. Every walk of life comes in and out of that Kroger. Every one of them. And to help people you know, kind of see like, first of all, it's okay to say something's not funny too. Like, you know, it's just, it's not funny. Like I I hear where you're coming from, but that's not cool. White folks need to start taking those courageous moves with their friends. It's easy to laugh off inappropriate stuff because we don't want to be awkward, but it's also okay to say, Hey, I know I've laughed at that. You know, I kind of get where you're coming from, but that's not cool, man. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not cool to call that murder Kroger. And then not only that, say I shot there. You got something, you got a problem with my croaker, but it, 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 there's a wonder and a beauty that when you start to, to walk in the places that, that the, the cross section, the intersectionality of your town exists, it's not about this side of the tracks or that side of the tracks. And let's be honest, church is still the most segregated place in America. Yep. You can walk in the intersectionalities of your town. That'll change you. Well, one of the things that I wanted to um, talk about before we finish was um, was a blog post that you actually wrote a while back, um, and it was one that you wrote about um, sobriety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it was an interesting post because, like, I think like a lot of yeah, what I've always said, I think I I, learned, I don't I'm not a big drinker, so I don't um, have that kind of background. But what I've learned more and more over time is. <laughs> in some ways, how much hidden that is, that you don't always see that. Um, what was your journey in kind of coming to that point? And I mean, I guess what kind of advice you have for pastors, especially, again, in the light of the pandemic and a lot of pastors dealing with a lot of burnout to kind of deal with whatever type of maybe addiction they might have. Yeah. Um, so I wrote that post in early 2020, pre-pandemic. I went about 90 days sober, and then I started drinking again when the pandemic hit, which is a nice way of rationalizing the fact that I just started drinking again. Um, I've been a fairly regular, I've been a very regular drinker for the last 10 years. <laughs> at times heavy and by heavy I mean you know two or three or four I mean I don't drink until I black out I don't lose my job I can function as a pastor I'm a very high functioning drinker um I also enjoyed the fact that um I was the cool pastor who'd who'd go drink with my church members Mm -hmm. you could be real with me and it was a persona that 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 was good I wanted to be real and authentic but over time it was also an excuse of giving in to you know, just addictive habits and routines. Um, I'm trying to keep this on the short side because I'm now 163 days sober. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I quit drinking the beginning of this year, and I've slowly come to the realization that what I thought was like, oh, I need to cut back. I need to dry January. I just need to adjust some habits. The truth is, I'd reached a point that by like five in the afternoon, I was thinking about having drinks that night after my kids went to bed. And when something good happened at the church, I'm going to celebrate with drinks. When I was stressed at work, I'm going to celebrate with drinks. When I'm happy, I'm going to enjoy an evening of watching a ball game and having a couple of drinks. When I'm mad or upset, I'm going to stew in my chair and have a couple of drinks. Um, I was spending way too much emotional energy thinking about alcohol. Mm -hmm. And alcohol had become a nightly friend. And the drinks got stronger because my tolerance goes up and everyone's tolerance goes up. Um, And it just kind of became a thing that this was my way of releasing. This was my way of relaxing and easing into the night. It's like a, it's like being when you're really cold and you get to that really warm bath and you kind of slowly sink down into it. And you know, your body just has this, this release almost of like, that's the way alcohol made me feel. Once I got about a drink and a half in, I felt that way. And the truth is, um, a lot of people can drink and manage their drinking just Mm -hmm. fine. I'm realizing I can't. Mm -hmm. Because when I go have a drink with you, then I'm thinking about getting more on my way home. Or if I go have a drink on Friday, then I'm probably going to have it again on Saturday and then on Sunday. And then now I can't remember the last night I didn't have a drink. But for a lot of folks, there's this in-between area of we're using it to self-medicate, to numb us, to stress, to worry, to whatever it is we don't like about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot that goes into that. And as pastors, we are in a, such an isolating field because the truth is you can be real. We've talked a lot about real, being real and transparent, but you, you never can fully be that with your people because you're their pastor. And so alcohol can become, or eating, or, you know, for some there's pornography. I mean, there's all kinds of things out there that it's very, that you can just simply drop the mask of being a pastor and you can just be you, the human. And the truth is there's things underneath the medic, the, 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 the stuff you're using to medicate that you need to deal with. And, and, and really work on doing hard, slow work on. And then you need to readjust some rhythms in your life and all that kind of stuff too. But for me, alcohol just became this great escape. And I had to really come to terms with what am I escaping from? And instead of escaping from it, how could I begin to learn to embrace it? I don't like myself all the time. There are a lot of things I really don't like about myself. But I'm who God made me to be. I'm not perfect, and I don't always live up to that. But if I'm who God made me to be, there's a certain grace we have to give ourselves to say whatever that is, is beautiful and worthy. And yeah, you screw it up as a pastor. Your sermon bombs sometimes. You say what you don't mean, and you, you, know, you mean what you don't say, and it's frustrating. But underneath all of that, there's a certain grace that takes time to embrace that says, here's the best news of all. 
God is God and you are not. And if you can let go of some of that, and I'm the world's worst at this, that's a heavy burden to carry. And sometimes we think things like alcohol can help us carry it when what we really just need to do is lay it down. Mm. And alcohol is an addictive substance. So it's no wonder why if you use it long enough, you're going to get hooked on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's, it, it's tough being a pastor, but it's tough being a human being. I mean, it's just tough. It's been a tough couple of years, all the stuff, and we're disrupted. I mean, I got to drinking heavy quick again because it was like Groundhog Day. You know, the movie, like, there was every, that was the only thing I had to look forward to was let's watch what some, you know, version of a TV show being filmed at home and, you know, have some booze that night because there, you know, you couldn't close a liquor store. And one of the ways that we can honor the most important creation that God's given us is, is ourselves. And one of the ways that we can honor that and care for that is to love it as it is and help it be the best version of itself possible. And the way that we do that is we take care of our bodies, our souls, our minds, our spirits, our relationships. We honor God. We try to honor God in all that we do. And, and we care for this as a gift that, that it's a vessel that's temporal but it's one that we are a steward of in this life. And we, we really engage with trying not to destroy it with harmful substances. I'm not, I don't judge anyone who drinks. I mean, it, it, it is what it is, but booze is like drinking gasoline. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, gasoline ain't going to kill you, you know, but I was at the level of like, I drink this every day. This is going to hurt me, you know, over time. But underneath that is the stuff you got to deal with, not the booze is the point. There's stuff we carry from our childhoods, trauma, stress, the way we do all family systems theory. That's another thing I would say. Read all you can on that. Um, uh, Ruth Haley Barton, wonderful. She got a podcast um, out and Stephen Cuss, who's, who's written about managing leadership, managing anxiety. They're doing a whole series of podcast episodes together. And they talk about family systems theory. If you can better understand who you are and where you come from, you can learn to love yourself better. And if you can love, learn to love yourself better, then you can really get to the heart of, of why you're putting booze and all these other harmful things into you just to numb yourself. Mm-hmm. We numb ourselves because we don't like where we are and we want to escape. Mm-hmm. But where we are is right where God wants to meet us. Well, that's kind of the old... Um... Terry now and wounded healer. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I, I will, it's wonderful interview. I don't want to hold you up forever. No, one, one last thing that's so good of all people, Russell Brand, the actor, was this prophet to me. Hmm. Russell Brand's dealt with recovery for years. Oh, yeah. And he says that he has finally embraced that for some people, and he believes he's one, that his his recovery is a calling Hmm. because if he can embrace it and do it, then he can come alongside others who don't think they can do it and show them you can do it. You can, you can be a more whole version of yourself. You don't have to keep beating the broken version of yourself up with substances. Um, I miss 
alcohol. I miss the culture. I love learning about it. I, I, I feel still feel weird socially mm-hmm. that I'm not drinking, but I also think that maybe one day I can help somebody know that they're not alone and that if you're having a hard time handling it and, and, and you can't shake it, you know, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. We can do it together. I'm, I'm, I have a drinking problem. Not everybody does, but there's some high functioning folks, more high functioning folks than probably realize it, that they're more on the edge of having a problem than they want to admit. Uh, that I truly believe. I've just been you know, experiencing life and then meeting lots of different people that what we think of, of as, as a people having a drinking problem is not really what it looks like in real life. Well, and what we do is we go hide. We hide and we do these things and we feel shame. Shame is the negative side of pride. And so what's really happening there in your shame is it's a dysfunction, a dysmorphic, uh, a dysmorphic expression of your pride. And, you know, pride goeth before the fall, as scripture says. And a lot of times, if we can learn to deal with our pride and our egos and cultivate humility, then we won't be engaging with these shame with the shame because when you weaponize shame, you're all you're doing is is using your pride to hurt yourself. Mm-hmm. And we do that to each other too. When we shame other people, we're just weaponizing our pride. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole healthy and holy version of ourselves is is humble. That's why Jesus says we honor things like humility and meekness. Well, thank you. This has been an engaging conversation. Um, it's been fun. I really appreciate this. So um, if people want to find out about you on the web, where should they go? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter uh, uh, at B Gosden, G-O-S-D-E-N. Uh, I have um, sort of a separate page from my personal page, uh, Ben Gosden. You can find me on uh, Facebook. Uh, I don't cultivate that nearly enough. My uh, blog is at mastersdust.com. Uh, I also have a podcast. Uh, I should do a return visit. Maybe we could talk more about this, this church closing you're doing or building sale and all that. Be a definitely conversation. Uh, yeah, uh, faith revisited podcast. I do with a layperson in my church, Molly. Uh, but we we have a podcast there and uh, and have a lot of fun with that. So yeah. I love you reached out through my blog um, to, to email. I love engaging with people and yeah, look me up. I'd love to be a conversation partner with anybody. Oh, definitely. Great. Well, thank you then for the, this time. And um, I definitely will expect that we will talk again soon. Sounds great, Dennis. Thank you. You're welcome. for listening to this episode. I, as I said earlier, I really did enjoy uh, speaking with Ben. Um, I really hope to have him back on again um, sometime soon. It was a 
this is one of those few, there's one of those conversations that it's, I mean, all of them are good. Um, but where it was actually, it felt more of a conversation and not as much an interview, which I guess means I must be doing, a, doing my job, but it was a really good time. Um, I do hope that you will consider leaving a good rating or review of the podcast. Um, when you leave those ratings, that kind of allows for the the algorithm gods to make finding this podcast easier. So um, made it easier for you. There is a link in the show notes that will allow you to easily leave uh, a rating or review. So that is it for this episode of Enroute, the podcast that's at the intersection of Church and Maine. Uh, I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. I, again, thank you so much for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you with more episodes very soon.